Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. My name is Peter Vell. I'm the co-host of this show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Well, coming up in the latter half of the show, Tyler, is a, a very special and important interview that we're happy to bring to the listeners on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. George P. Bush, Commissioner of the Texas General Land Office and the lead state coastal manager under law. Yeah, in the state of Texas, uh, the land commissioner has uh, in, uh, an incredible slate of responsibilities related to the Texas coast, and we thought it would just be a perfect follow-up here uh, from our interview uh, last week with uh, Kelly Burks Copes, Kelly Burks Copes uh, from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and the lead planner of uh, the Texas Coastal Resiliency and Restoration. Is that correct? Outstanding. Restoration program, program yes. slash plan. Yes. Um, and of course, this is a massive project on the American shoreline, and, and we really want to bring, uh, we're going to really focus on it because uh, it's the planning and the process that's going on in this project will be uh, harnessed on other projects, like for example, in New York City and um, San Francisco and yeah. all these other urban areas, urban shorelines, um, where the, we, the taxpayers will be, uh, building some really serious infrastructure along those shorelines. And we're all interested to know how yeah. that will work. Well, as Kelly Burks copes, and if y'all did not hear that podcast, it came out Monday this week. So, uh, take a look at that podcast with, uh, uh, Dr. Copes, and, and she as she made clear she is managing a 120-member federal team on the largest Corps of Engineers project going on in the country. And uh, she is the direct partner on the future of the Texas coast and our shorelines uh, with Commissioner George Bush at the General Land Office, who is the local, the non-federal sponsor, right, is the General Land Office. So these two interviews back to back, if you're interested in what's going on on the Texas coast, this was a great week. It is, and uh, it was really great to sit down uh, with Commissioner Bush, um, who of course is the son of Jeb Bush. Uh, and uh, let's see, he is the nephew of yeah. George W. Bush, the former president, and the grandson of that's George H.W. Bush, the former good. president. <laughs> the lineage so, is clear. That's right. So we actually got to talk to George Bush about his coastal family identity, which is really cool because, mm -hmm. as I'm sure our audience is aware, the Bushes have a place in Maine on the Maine shoreline. Kenny of Bunkport, course, of course. Kenny Bunkport. It's actually where uh, George P. Bush was married. Yep. Uh, and, of course, his father was governor of the great state of Florida. That's the right. The Sunshine State. That's right. Uh, which, of course, has renowned beaches and shorelines. Baby went through, you know, in Florida when he was a school teacher in uh, Florida, he uh, in Miami, he went through Hurricane. What the hell was the one that just devastated oh, South forget. Florida, Miami? Y'all know which one it is. He was in, in that. So he's got that exposure to uh, coastal storms on the Atlantic side. Uh, he said he went to Kenny Bunkport every year, summer of his life, except for the year he was in Afghanistan. That's right. So it's going to be a great... And born in Houston. Don't forget that's that. That's right. Born in Houston. Which he considers a coastal city, as do we. Of course it is. Yeah, it's a no-brainer. The Bayou City. Yeah. So uh, that's really fun. Something to look forward to in, uh, in a few minutes. But uh, we thought we would chat with y'all really quickly about what's going on elsewhere on the American shoreline, since we've got some Texas-centric yeah. content here. Uh, so, Peter, 
our our news guru, <laughs> tell us about the goings on on well, the American shoreline. As y'all know, coastalnewstoday.com is the website where you can find uh, the the news of the American shoreline and around the world. We try to do a little bit of international coverage on Coastal News Today every day, but. I, I would be interested to know if the audience uh, and the readers uh, enjoy reading the kind of stuff I've been posting. I just want to tell y'all, I really am interested in what's going on in the Arctic. And I'm particularly interested in the shipping lanes and the f- ice and who's who's claiming what space and what kind of research vessels are going up there. I'm just really digging that. So I am posting a lot of Arctic-related stories, and I don't know if other people care about the Arctic. Well, we do. We do. But what Peter's saying is send us an email and let us know. Peter at CoastalNewsToday.com. Send Peter an email. Tyler at CoastalNewsToday.com. Send me an email. Send us both an email. Let us know what, what the hell you think about our coverage. Obviously, we've expanded the slate we're covering a lot more than than uh, coastal you, you uh, coastal news today used to cover, um, and we're doing that very deliberately. We want to yeah. tell the 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 broader big story because all of these uh, different facets uh, and industries and and uh, interests that exist along the American shoreline are interconnected and impact each other. So this is yeah. So Peter, tell us about what's going on in the Arctic here. Well, oh, the couple. Why, of why are you so interested? Well, in I mean, look, I think the, the climate change uh, is let's just say the uh, it's in, in transition. The economic opportunities that are going to happen in a virgin uh, par- part of the planet. I mean, it's the 21st century, and here is a territory that the human race has not exploited. The fisheries, the minerals, that there's no Simply because it was covered in ice, it was, yes, it was impossible. There's nothing up there. And we're about to witness, I think, one of the great land rushes ever on the planet, which is going to be the fight to get into the Arctic. And so that's why I think it's fascinating. It's story. a race. It's Races a race. are good content. Well, <laughs> see, wins, but historic uh, low. This summer was the historic. They're supposed to be the high point of, of Arctic ice about now in the Bering Sea, and it is basically ice free, according to NASA. You know, the uh, the loss of ice in the Arctic is, of course, a huge topic. And what we're also seeing, what I thought was interesting coming up on Coastal News today is tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow, there's a couple of stories, but. One I was very interested in is the Chinese and the Russians undertaking a joint research uh, program in the Arctic. And, and they've made an arrangement on access to the fishery up in the Arctic between themselves. They are joining forces against the other folks around the Arctic Circle, us included. And uh, they're getting out there first. Uh, uh, Russia is really putting a lot of energy into what's going on in the Arctic and shipping in their military installations and their research effort up there. Well, it is fascinating, and obviously this is going to be a major, major issue uh, in probably the next, what would you say, five years or so as yeah. as the infrastructure is built out and then it really gets serious. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, this is, you know, as we cover the news and, and tell the stories of what's going on along the American shoreline, we can't separate the discussion from climate change, which is oftentimes yeah. the primary driver of uh, what's going on and, and why these things are, yeah. uh, of course, not only interesting to us, but incredibly interesting to the stakeholders who are having to adapt and change and Correct. Uh, adjust to the changing climate. Right. I'd say if you want to understand climate change, look in the water, not in the atmosphere. Uh, th- there's a good story on the on Coastal News today about what's happening, and I've, we've been very kind of 
focused on the main lobster fishery lately yeah we've been doing a lot on that and th- there's a storm a story today about the bait crisis the state of uh, the atlantic fisheries management council in the state cut the herring uh fishing quota by 70 percent and herring is the bait used for lobster traps and because they were overfishing the heck out of it some people think there's climate change impacts as well um and that net, net, the need for that much bait is a function of the fact that the damn lobster population is quadrupled the, the catch from 40 million pounds a year to 130 right. and they need a lot of bait they're just using more yeah they're using a lot more and uh if, uh if if our audience has not done so already go back and listen to the changing waters uh podcast with jerry cushman mm-hmm. uh who is a uh, lobsterman captain uh and uh someone who's actually building a bait freezer on yep. the main shoreline uh to so that they can bring in frozen herring right. and store it during the season and he'll sell it. And yeah. uh, this yeah. is a new business that's emerging because, of course, uh, the herring fishery is yeah. being uh, significantly cut back. And and it's a climate change impact. Because for for of, sure. You know, the, it, there's a the couple of good podcasts on the main fishing, uh, main uh, lobster fishery, if you miss them. The David Abel uh, interview... Uh, from last week is really good. David Abel is a Boston, uh, a Boston Globe reporter and a filmmaker who did a film called Lobster War. Pulitzer Prize uh, journalist, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. And um, uh, coverage of the Boston bombing. I mean, this is a known guy, but he's of, of late. He covers environmental issues and he's been really drawn, just like you said earlier, Peter, mm-hmm. to the water and to the shoreline, because this is where. Uh, climate change is being initially felt and seen you can really yeah. uh see what's going on here and uh yeah that's a great show we've i think we've done three shows now right on yeah. on the main lobster fishery we it, had the lobster scientist on right why can't i remember his name it's not paul komar who's the other no, great scientist it was kunkel i believe yes joseph joseph kunkel from uh the university of maine new biddeford and right. uh, lobster science university of new england yeah yeah sorry new yeah, no problem correct <laughs> <laughs> sorry joe uh but uh yeah i think i think the alaska s- stuff the temperature change the, the climate change as you said it's the it's how these communities are going to have to adjust both in terms of water level how the economics are going to have to morph i mean that's really just fascinating. One, you know, whenever, whenever there's a change happening, it's interesting and it's compelling. And, and it's something that I know all of our professionals and government people, policy people want to keep your eye on. Yeah. Um, that's how that's that's after all how we adapt and and do our jobs well. So yeah. we're actually following another really interesting uh, news thing, Peter, that you've been um, with that news category that you have been covering very well, which is the uh, ongoing uh battle between uh, short-term rentals yeah. and uh, coastal communities. Yeah. And, um, of course, we've been talking about this since we first kicked off the American Shoreline Podcast Network. It's a really interesting uh, situation. But, Peter, tell us a little bit about some of the more recent stories well, on this. you know, I d- it, it is a key topic because it, this is an economic transformation uh, right. going on on the American Shoreline uh, in the way that property is used at, in, in these tourism and recreational-based economies. So there's a couple of things happening. In Florida, they, uh, a, a city has retained outside independent auditors to chase down all the people who are renting and not paying the tax, and then they're splitting the take on that. So there's communities getting very aggressive on the tax collection side. 
there's a whole bunch of other beach communities that are, are that are trying to limit these things either to certain neighborhoods or certain times of the year or ban them outright and uh, the big debate really is how does that kind of property usage rotating people through the same property over and over how does that change the neighborhood and the character of the town right and you know it's a I, it's interesting to watch the variety of different ways that local communities are facing this problem. And it really strikes hardest in smaller coastal communities. This is where, um, you know, the impacts of uh, these short-term rentals uh, operating are, I think the most felt, the most controversial, Mm -hmm. most visible, most visible. You know, we, we opened up, I think the first real deep dive we did on this was a, uh, Cal- I want to say it was Oceanside. Is that right? Uh, it was uh, a California yeah. city. Yeah, it was. Ocean View, uh, something like that. But, yeah, it, you know, it's right. south of the Bay Area, mm-hmm. um, right in the pocket where uh, if you were operating a short-term rental, you'd be targeting Bay Area people yeah. to, who are going away on the weekend during the summertime. Of course. And um, that community is large enough and their economy is diversified enough where they were able to kind of put, okay, if you're, if you have a beach house, you can short-term rent it, but we're not allowing that on the internal part of the neighborhood part of the city, which, which was not immediately adjacent to the shoreline. They kind of created a tourism district, if you will. Yeah, kind of. That's a good way um, to put it. And, uh, that was their way. But of course this was battled through elections and this was majorly controversial in the city council. This was not without, you know, the pound of flesh that had to be taken in order to get this, that done. Well, the other, other really interesting story that's been on coastal news today, and this is a, you would find this under the property category. This is how I, uh, category. That's right. You know, in the top of the page, but what's happened in North Carolina, as you said, smaller communities feel it differently and out on the outer banks and on the uh, coast of North Carolina, there's a lot of ribbon little communities that are pretty small. And what's happening now, if you can believe this, is there was a lawsuit uh, against the builder of a new home, which was uh, permitted as a single family dwelling, but it had 15 rooms and 23 bathrooms in it. And it was, and it's clearly built as an investment property for the Airbnb market. It's a hotel. It's a hotel. And so this particular uh, economic transformation is changing how structures are built, not just how they're used. I mean, people are now building and we've, Tyler and I, when we go to the coast, we typically stay at an Airbnb or some sort of video or whatever. Yeah. A short term um, rental. But, That's what we do. You know, building big houses because they can get five, six, seven, eight thousand dollars a week, ten thousand dollars a week. I mean, mm-hmm. well, it's, it's changing coastal communities. It is. There's so much money to be made, and uh, uh, you know, obviously. Uh, these properties are expensive to maintain uh, all of our listeners out there to ensure there's lots of costs associated with these houses. So if you are going to be sitting in it and living in it, you are foregoing a, 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 you are a incurring, you're going to incur those costs and you are Mm -hmm. uh, the opportunity cost of not renting that out. Eventually you're like, boy, it's would boy, that would be nice to have that extra cash in my pocket. Right. Um, And you know, here's the other thing that's interesting about beach house ownership. And we've heard this from, 
when we were consulting in Florida, we heard this from time to time where people would say, hey, you know, we were from Pittsburgh. We were in the Union. It was cold. It was snowy. And then, we, you know, all we were dreaming about for retirement was getting right. down to Florida and having our beach place. Yeah. And for the first five to 10 years, it was great. But now I'm <laughs> we're here on your 12 to 15 and we don't really see the, you know, even though the beach is still there, it's still beautiful. We're, right. We've grown accustomed to it. Right. And uh yeah, you don't appreciate it the same way or experience right. it. It's familiarity breeds contempt. So mm-hmm. when you get to that point emotionally, yeah, you know, you you come in the summer when you want to be at your house, but then you. But why it. would you exactly? So, yeah. you know, in the past, you might just sell that house and right. and buy something else to live in. Yeah, but perhaps it's more sensible to rent that house and buy another house yeah. as well. So I yeah. mean, you, you know. This is the problem that I think um, I shouldn't say it's a problem, but this is a a, a change that is actually happening. Yeah. Um, you know, my grandfather used to say, and I'm sure we've all heard it. They're not making any more beachfront property, <laughs> which is not true. They, you know, Mother Earth is spitting out islands there. And well, the, it's questionable whether we get to the overall net is longer or shorter. I would. Yeah, I, I think it's. It, yeah, we're losing some. Anyway, the, the other big area that I've yeah. really enjoyed covering that I also would appreciate feedback on. Like people yeah. would email Tyler and email us and go, look, there's just too much stuff about energy. Uh, and and I really am interested in the energy uh, issue for the same reason I'm interested in the Airbnb issue. These are transformative economic powers on the shoreline that are making the physical space of the coast change immediately. I mean, the port of Corpus Christi going to 58 feet, a billion-dollar LNG export terminal. I mean, the, the dredging plan has changed. The infrastructure plan has changed. The investors, the Carlisle Group is there now. Texas is going to be an export terminal, and Corpus Christi is going to be the new big export terminal for oil from uh, the shale in Texas. I mean, it's right. clear. So that's going to be kind of natural. Get there. Whereas the Houston uh, facilities are refineries kind and of, gasoline yeah. and, and yeah. like crude. That's right. What we're seeing in Corpus is this new thing that kind of was really developed. I mean, I think we really got good at it kind of during the Obama years, mm-hmm. and now we're in full... Full, yeah. Uh, yeah, the U.S. has been the number one oil and gas producer, if you put oil and gas together, in the world since about 2013, 14. Yeah. Uh, so, and now we're, uh, the export ban has been lifted. So you're seeing the oil and gas industry transformation. Totally. Right? I'm digging all of that. And, of course, the fight on the eastern seaboard about even the seismic testing for oil and gas. Gomisa funds and how that is yeah. reflected by that. Right. And the other thing, of course, is, is uh, and I, you might have just mentioned this, but I'm going to say it again. Uh, the the offshore wind and yeah. uh, the amount of money that's going into that it's versus incredible. offshore oil. Yeah. And, you know, as, uh, oh, goodness, I'm blanking on uh, Sue Havorka. Yeah. Uh, she said, you know, these are energy Dr. companies. They, they're they interested in energy. That is their business. So you, you can bet your boots that they're going to be investing in whatever type of energy generation makes the most sense at the time. Yeah, Shell uh, was a major bidder in one part of the offshore wind resource lease that uh, our federal government had through the Bureau of Offshore Energy Management, BOEM. Uh, and that lease, the what's happening in the Northwest on wind power is, is really stunning. And for all the engineers out there and the people who handle port facilities, they're already discussing whether the port facilities are properly You're set saying up. The, north, the Pacific in the, Northwest? No, in the Northeast. The Northeast, sorry. okay. Did I say north, yeah, Northeast? You, um, up in the Northeast, whether the port facilities are uh, configured 
appropriately to serve these wind towers because of course the blades are 300 feet long and whatnot and you just have to look at the ports and go they can't we can't work here so coastal engineers out there the reason i think you want to watch wind and how it's progressing around the american shoreline is for that kind of stuff and you know yeah it's i mean infrastructure uh improvements and uh these port in port improvements are going to be required and that's going to require a good a good amount of coastal engineering fellas yeah if you're in the business ladies and gentlemen (laughs) that's right ladies and gentlemen and how they're reconciling the conflicts with the fishing industry up in the northeast is there's a about 300 million dollars changing hands between the wind power industry and the fishing community to offset the what they think is going to be added hassle of getting in and out of where they want to fish and fuel costs and things like that. And so they cut a deal. I'm interested in those uh-huh. deals and how, how those are coming together. Um, but really what stuns me is really the value of the offshore energy leases that Boehm put out was over $400 million, I think around $415 million bid for the right to put towers out. Y'all not to, this isn't to build anything. This is the lease of the area for when, and the Bering Sea uh, offshore energy lease was going on kind of at the same time. And this is an oil and gas opening up the Arctic National Wildlife Resource Reserve and the, and the shoreline uh, in the Bering Sea to oil and gas. That, that came in at around, if I'm, I think this is right, $28 million. I mean, it was very, very low response. They can't operate there. It's very controversial. They know they're going to get sued. Nobody's buying up there. Mm-hmm. And even in the Gulf of Mexico, the lease sale was was powerful but the wind cost of wind leases on the american shoreline is comparable i think it's comparable to what's going on in oil and that tells me a lot if the people with are dropping that kind of investment you know this is real this isn't about greenies these are guys putting a lot of money down and they're they have a fiduciary responsibility to be looking uh pretty far ahead and uh, they have no plan of going out of business in the next 10 or 15 years. No. And if you're listening to what's happening on the uh, the greeny side of the spectrum here with the Green New Deal and kind of the political horsepower that yeah. is currently um, uh, being used in the halls of Congress and in Washington, D.C., D. inside the Beltway, uh, you if you probably are interested in diversifying your energy generation sources. and. Yeah. Um, clearly, there's a there's a rush to do that. I mean, that's what they're, they're, they're leading like their way up. That kind of looks like it. And yeah. uh, these are a little bit. Well, I don't know. I, I just think it's fascinating it to is. watch. Um, it is, and I, I I can't imagine that we will be. Uh, we're not going to be leaving those stories behind because they're really important and uh, extremely interesting. Uh, before we get to George P. Bush, I want to yeah. quickly just run through some of the shows that we have on the podcast network. Because, oh, Peter, okay. we've got some really great oh, stuff up. Yeah. We should just breeze through it. We could yeah, go we on and it. on and on. But yeah, um, the first thing, let's just start with the show uh, from Wednesday of last week. Uh, our good old friend Rob Nixon from South Padre Island and the Next Swell podcast. Yeah. Uh, Rob... Uh, welcomed Matt Love uh, yeah. from Oregon to his show, and it's a really great show. It is. I mean, the one thing I like about this network, and hopefully you guys do too, is the diversity of discussions and topics that, you know, you can have an engineering show and a policy show side by side with a show about an artist or a show that Rob did with Matt Love, who's a, a, a beach advocate in Oregon and has dedicated his life now in his mid-50s to talking about 
teaching about inspiring people about the, the Oregon coast. Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting show. First of all, uh, Peter, of course, is familiar with the Oregon coast. Oh. Um, I am not, and I have suspected a good chunk of our audience. This will be really informative. Oregon has a really unique uh, coastal culture because the water is really cold. So you don't really, it's not like Florida or Texas or California even where you'd see surfers out there in the water all the time. Like a lot of the beach culture is on the beach. Yeah. And you go in the summertime and you bring your book. But most interestingly, uh, you you build and you utilize these driftwood beach forts, which yeah. is just so unique. And it's a product of the logging industry, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's, but it's creative and these are little beach shelters that get, that can wash away and there's no litter. Uh, and it's just a really, really Oregon cool little <laughs> beach culture thing that no, I really liked it. I, I did too. It was surprising. I get surprised by Rob all the time. And, uh, I get surprised by, by Jenna Valente all the time too. She, her show is somehow always it's a smack in the head to me it's like you, you're not seeing things you know the sea change podcast yeah. Jana valente yeah, is uh is always bringing us stories of uh beach advocates and people who uh aim to improve our oceans and shorelines um in in various ways but most recently she had on uh a an artist who yeah. makes art out of garbage uh plastic garbage in new york city in new york city and this guy is so passionate he's so uh clear-eyed about his mission to do this you can't help but kind of be be moved by this guy he was amazing and uh you know the funny thing was listen listening to what he was saying from a guy who had a you know a brooklyn accent daniel lanzalotta <laughs> lanzalotta grew up in brooklyn I think i'm not going to do an, an impression right now but <laughs> you know when i was conducting this recording i could hear this guy i was like this guy is from i think he's from like yonkers or something right. like it's a real he's like really yeah he's very new yorky and talking about <clears throat> environmental health and the environment in a way that is incredibly interesting uh, i just totally it was a it was a juxtaposition of the of the two that really Plus just what he said, but I also really been uh, enjoying Jacques uh, Hebert and Simone Malaz from uh, our great show for Added New Orleans, Delta Dispatches. They've been doing some damn good stuff. They have been, and uh, they're they come out every Tuesday. So, yeah. um, and if we've we've done quite a bit of material on here, guys. You all know how important we think the Louisiana shoreline is because of the amount of investment and the the true land loss crisis that they're fighting. Right. So we're keeping a close eye on them and, and Jacques and Simone are uh, doing an amazing job. Uh, of course, we have our monthly update from uh, Howard Marlowe and Dan Janolfi, uh, right. the waterlog podcast, our DC beltway boys <laughs> giving us the, right. giving us the lowdown and skinny on Trump's budget uh, and what that means for, uh, for coastal projects and investment, um, just a just solid. Stay on top of that. And we have another show, of course. Very recently, well, the uh, let the, me just say, go ahead. Let go me ahead. Just say one thing is, and this is kind of what because we talked about about Rob Nixon with Matt Love from the Oregon Shoreline and Jenna Valente, you know, talking to an artist in New York. And the next two uh, shows are dedicated to deep public policy inside the D.C. Beltway and what's happening on the federal budget. Right. Right. And and. Uh, and what's the other one you mentioned was 
Uh, well, so what I was going to say here is that we have the Capital Beach podcast as well with Derek Brockbank. Right. And uh, this is coming right on the heels of uh, the ASBPA Coastal Summit yeah. in Washington, D.C. So, yes, Peter, you're exactly right. Uh, we are we are serving up. Uh, it's a it's a broad spectrum. We're serving up a cornucopia of yeah. uh, coastal programming that ranges from. Sure. Softer advocacy stories, guys, but we also have that federal policy stuff. We're, right. And and in a few minutes here, you're going to be hearing uh, us check in with George Prescott Bush, the land commissioner of the great state of Texas. So we are bringing right. all corners of the American shoreline. <laughs> well, and don't forget, I mean, look who look who Jacques and Simone had on Delta Dispatches last week. It was Erin uh, Plish, as I think is how you pronounce her name, and she's a, one of the chief engineers for the Coastal Protection Restoration Authority in Louisiana. And they talked intensively about the diversion projects that are going on that are going to reshape that delta down there. They're working really hard and spending lots of money. And I just think that I love the spectrum of uh, kind of the information and the guests and and, and the shows on uh, the American Shoreline Podcast Network. That's right. And uh, uh, let's get into uh, George W. Bush. But first, yeah, okay, let's have a word from our sponsors. Well, I think we have three sponsors these days on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, also on Coastal News Today. And let me tell you, um, every little bit helps. And uh, so we want to thank our first sponsor, Dune Doctors, out of Pensacola, Florida, headed by Frederick Barrasset. And they are outstanding at uh, shoreline dune restoration plantings and marsh plantings. I don't know if people know this. Frederic uh, was trained as a wine grower in France. She grew up in France, and she got her degree in. So she's got that terroir going (laughs) of her uh, beach and dune. So she's got a great company out there in Pensacola, and you can find Frederic at DuneDoctors.com. And we want to thank our uh, good friends at Coastal Engineering Consultants out of Naples, Florida, Uh, and of course they're headed up by President Michael Poff, who's. (laughs) not only a host on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, but an all-around great guy and superb engineer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can learn about them at maybe the best coastal engineering website in the world, coastalengineering.com. I know. How did you get that, Michael? That was smart. And uh, our last sponsor, uh, LJA Engineering, uh, their coastal uh, engineering uh, section is headed up by Bill Worsham here in Austin, Texas. They've got 28 offices around the Gulf Coast. Uh, they do a lot of work over in East Texas shoreline in Jefferson County, but Bill Worsham, uh, a real pro, great coastal engineers. And uh, we've, in our past lives, worked with Bill on projects and always found him to be a great guy to, to get things done. Absolutely. And uh, if you are interested in advertising with us, reach out to us. Uh, Peter at CoastalNewsToday.com. Tyler at po- CoastalNewsToday.com. We'd love to hear from you. We've got slots open and... Uh, we're a great platform for the coastal community, and we need your support. Uh, yep. It's it's be thanks to our sponsors that we're able to do these shows and travel around and cover our expenses and and really put a microphone in front of the the serious thinkers and policymakers along the American shoreline and bring that to you. So, yep, uh, reach out to us if you have any interest in that, and uh, we will. And I tell you, we'll keep we'll keep putting together great shows and content for you guys. Uh, we are in the process. I don't want to. This is not guaranteed, but we are in the process of getting uh, a, an interview with uh, with Colonel Zetterstrom, uh, who's the district commander of the Galveston district, uh, undertaking the thirty two billion dollars in coastal investment at the core. That uh, 
we are hoping to have that show to you guys in the near future, but we've got some really uh, great shows and your support would be very much appreciated. And now here's our interview with George Bush. Thank you, Commissioner, for joining us on the show and having us in your office and for your staff for setting this up for us. Uh, the General Land Office plays a critical role on the Texas coast. I think the lead agency in so many important programs. And uh, we were just uh, so uh, happy to be able to sit down and talk to you about that today. Absolutely. It's great to be with you, Peter. And um, I'm glad we could follow up after our, our great discussion and giving an update in front of the legislature uh, here in Austin for this um, important session. This is a Harvey-focused agenda, as you can imagine, for the agency and for the people. So excited to, to, to visit with you and dive deeper. Thank well, you. Commissioner, uh, it's, it is, I'll reiterate what Peter said, it is great to be here and uh, really appreciate the time today. Uh, one of the things I wanted to open up with is, uh, of course, we, we're going to get into the, the, your, your responsibilities on the Texas coast as the land commissioner of Texas, but you come from a coastal family. You have tremendous coastal credentials. If I'm not mistaken, you were married on the main <laughs> shoreline. Um, so tell me a little bit about your, your early memories uh, on the American shoreline from Maine to Florida to Texas. Well, a lot of people don't know that I was uh, born in Houston. And I would consider Houston a, a probably the largest coastal community there is in our in our country. I mean, we could probably debate on the population figures yeah. there. Yep. But um, and and I went to school at Rice, and we had the great floods of uh, of '94 when I was a freshman at Rice, and I'll never forget that. But yeah, I mean, would go to the main coast every summer growing up. In fact, outside of serving in Afghanistan, um, I went. I've been to Maine every summer of my life, and I'm 42 years old. Wow. Um, and the thing about Maine, it's, you know, obviously Kenny Bunkport is, it's got a special place in the Bush family heart, but there's so many wonderful state and national parks. And now that we have two boys that are five and three to be able to take them on the coastline on these hiking trails in the Northeast is pretty, pretty special during the summer. Um, but you know, as land commissioner, unlike a lot of other States, the state actually maintains a lot of its own coastline. So, uh, a big part of our charge and partnership with the Parks and Wildlife and TCQ is to make sure that we have enough recreational tourism for the millions of visitors that come to the Texas coastline every year. And it really is an underrated coastline, the Texas coastline. So this is a wonderful opportunity to evangelize how great it is. Uh, you know, much of our audience, when they when they think across America, when they think of uh, a beach on the American shoreline, they're going to conjure up Hawaii or, you know, maybe California or Maine, you know. But Texas really has an amazing coastline, an amazing history um, going way back to, to recreating down in South Texas, the fishing industry and uh, it's really awesome that you get that's part of your portfolio here at the land office, which is uh, wonderful. Uh, we wanted to ask you a little bit about your uh, what you're working on currently with this Texas Coastal Resiliency Master Plan. This is a, a long initiative that you began when you first came into office. Tell us a little bit about uh, why you decided to uh, undertake this planning process and where we are now. Well, going back to my my family roots, I grew up in South Florida. And in high school, I'll never forget Hurricane Andrew, a Category 4 storm that impacted South Florida. Um, forever changed that community. In fact, with Homestead Air Force Base shutting down, many would say that um, Homestead will never be the same again. I would later go back to teach in an inner city high school after graduating from college. But as a victim of a hurricane, and based on that experience, I knew that if I ever came back to serve others, that I would focus on resiliency and preparing for storms. And so... When I came into office in 2015, uh, it was reported to me that we 
there were some great ideas out there, whether it was from Rice University or A&M Galveston, to look at a coastal surge barrier system along the likes of what we've seen in the Netherlands. Even in New Orleans, after Katrina, that were built a full-blown coastal barrier system that was funded by the federal government. So we found savings in our budget to undertake that effort. We were told by the Corps it would be a, f- a very exhaustive five-year $20 million process, the largest study of its kind underwritten by the Corps of Engineers. We said, um, every, yes, everything is bigger in Texas, but when it comes to, to coastal resiliency, <laughs> this agency is going to have to step up to this challenge. So yeah. we found the savings in our budget, 50-50 partnership. Unfortunately, we did not complete that plan before Hurricane Harvey made landfall, uh, so we were unable to get congressional appropriation. But uh, Sabina Galveston was completed. Um, that is on the books, and we are well on our way to getting a state match to meet that federal uh, congressional appropriation, which would essentially be the phase one to the overall coastal barrier process. So uh, a lot of work ahead. We're very thankful for community stakeholders to be a part of that process, but uh, we got a long way to go. And it is a, it, it, it's an amazing plan to see, Commissioner. The, uh, the uh, Texas Coastal Resiliency Master Plan is a, an impressive body of work. It pulls together so much uh, that needs to be addressed on the Texas uh, coast. From the math we did, it's 123 projects identified in that plan, $5.4 billion, we think, if we did the math right. But it is a big initiative, and the land office is in the lead seat on that thing. Yeah, it's, it's important because it's not only looking at the engineering behind uh, storm surge barriers, which is important. A lot of people focus on that in the yep. ship channel. But there's billions of dollars in terms of beach renourishment, wetland mitigation, uh, making sure we're preserving this rich uh, biodiversity that we have in the Texas Gulf Coast. It also helps to take care of South Texas as you get closer to South Padre Island, Laguna Madre. It also... Um, Further strengthens the Powderhorn Ranch Conservation, which is Fantastic. project which is the largest in the state of Texas and state history, and that's a partnership. Taking some of the BP Deepwater Horizon spill lit- litigation money and partnering with Parks and Wildlife. Uh, my even my aunt uh, Laura Bush was uh, a part of that effort and helping to secure some of the uh, easements on that. So all to say that it's wow. not just about protecting the ship channel. It's uh, looking up and down the coast, looking at. Um, I call them organic investments, which over the long run actually end up being a, uh, a larger return on your investment and in, 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 um, protecting against storm surge. It, it really is fabulous the way it's the, the comprehensiveness of the study in Region 1, which is the upper Texas coast you mentioned, up at Galveston, Fort Bend County, over to the Louisiana border, 49 projects, uh, $4.9 billion. In Region 2, the mid-coast, 19 projects there. In Region 3, a little bit further down the coast, we're going south, 27 projects and 13 in Region 4. So the, the land office did a statewide comprehensive examination of the issues. And, and the, this is the most specific project list I think the state has ever produced. And it starts to look a little bit like the serious level of planning that Louisiana undertakes with their Coastal Protection Restoration Authority and such an important step for the state of Texas to get this thing down on paper and then, Commissioner, have some revenues to do something about it, which is also new. Uh, tell us about where you stand with the monies that are you're managing. You're, boy, you guys are have a big job on that side. In terms of Harvey Relief. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. So we were the first agency to take on a temporary housing mission uh, in response to a storm. So Louisiana had experimented with what they called a STEP program, which was a direct repair uh, up to 10,000 homes in hmm. response to the 16 flood season. 
FEMA wants to move more to that paradigm, and we agree, because um, a lot of legislators gave us calls saying we don't want travel trailers and MHUs in our in our neighborhoods. So when it was all said and done, it was a billion-dollar uh, line of credit that the, the federal government provided. Uh, they're doing follow-on uh, inspections and audits. We've had no findings, uh, no abuse, and we've housed over 50,000 Texans through a, wow. a variety of programs. But we now manage the $10 billion HUD block grant, which will be even more challenging from a red tape perspective um, because roughly the register rules have not been uh, published yet by the federal government. It's been close to two years. Yeah, that's correct. And so I've had to take on my own party um, (laughs) in Washington, D.C. and and be bold and represent Texans. That's who I'm elected to serve. And this idea of potentially sweeping core money – to, to the wall project uh, to me is unforgivable. Right. And so I, along with a lot of other folks, I'm not alone on this, um, are standing up for Texans during this, um, during this time. Well, the, the needs on the coast are real. Uh, that's obviously well set out in the master plan you've produced and also the Corps of Engineers Texas Coastal Plan, which we uh, got a briefing up there. There is more work to do on the Texas coast and more at rest than ever before. And uh, to see the land office and the Corps join forces to really try to tackle this is is impressive. I have to ask about, you've got the, the Harvey money that you're working with, and you've got this new GOMESA phase two revenue source, which is another powerful economic uh, asset for the land office to manage. Tell us about GOMESA. So oddly enough, during the appropriations committee um, hearing, I, I received one question. And it was in relation to GOMISA, what is it and what's, mm-hmm. what's it going for? And now that there's increased revenues flowing through uh, the Gulf of Mexico Security um, Act um, program and with increased revenues coming off of it for right. the state of Texas, that, that will uh, benefit the coast. And so we're protecting it. Uh, so far, there hasn't been a power grab for that, uh, for that money. Uh, we believe that we are the strongest agency since we're on the coast 24-7 yep. um, and have shown a good partnership with Parks and Wildlife, TCQ, and other agencies that help to source a lot of these important projects. So um, we continue to fight for that. In, in addition to KEPRA, you know, a lot of a lot of Texans don't know that um, that used to be a dedicated account for this agency. Yeah, and, back in the day. And two was- sessions ago, it was moved to general revenue. So. Yeah. Uh, that could easily be swept. It, let's say we have uh, a correction in oil and gas prices and we have a tight budget. So every session I've been fighting to get that back to a dedicated account. Much needed. Uh, which is an impo- arguably the most important federal matching program that this state has. So we're fighting for flexibility. We're fighting to protect existing money and maybe even allowing, uh, since we do generate revenues off of state lands, to be utilized for coastal protection wow. uh, projects as well. Wow. That would be tremendous. It would be. Now, I, I, a couple things. I want to go back to this big state plan because, uh, and and what you were talking about earlier about growing up and, and remember being hit by a hurricane because it seems to me that uh, it is your responsibility to know, and you do, that uh, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Um, our preparedness is is a perpetual thing. So now we have this list of tier one projects that are all you know based around restoration and resiliency. Um, how are you planning to prioritize? I mean, this is a lot of work that's going to take decades. I mean, this is, this is a monumental plan. Um, how are you planning to prioritize these projects, uh, allow the plan to adapt? And from a management perspective, from a leadership perspective, how are you planning to, to move into implementation? Well, one of the big lessons that we've learned, whether it was the Harvey process or, or managing the Alamo, is engaging the public, especially in the coastal barrier discussion, is to yeah. hire third-party 
um, I call them conversation facilitators. So it's not Commissioner Bush holding a town hall forum because then people are going to hold a, a, a certain opinion that I have a certain opinion, and that's going to cloud the judgment of how right. these projects are prioritized. I think what our agency's role can be is to be an honest broker of the information, is to help rack and stack, but facilitate the discussion, have community stakeholders, uh, whether they're foundations or nonprofit organizations or community groups that care and live on the coast and have them prioritize the projects. Um, we could be involved in terms of discussing how much available capital would be available, helping to secure that capital at the federal level, advocating here at the legislature, um, and, and particularly as it relates to resiliency and preparing for the next storm. Uh, I think this is a session to do that since we're looking yeah. at the rainy day fund. But all to say that I think our, I think our role is to be an honest broker, not necessarily to be the arbiter, be on top of the Capitol Hill here deciding which project should be uh, racked and stacked. Yeah. Well, I think that's interesting, the local control versus central control. We have a the centralized plan, and but we also have local conditions on the ground. I mean, we, we go from beach community to beach community, and we... We hear, you know, a, a, there are themes for sure that we that we hear, but there, it, every town is unique. Every every priority list within the community is unique. So I think it I think it's wise to do that. And of course, the neat thing about that GoMesa funding is that there is a local county share. Um, so with this centralized plan, perhaps we'll see more cooperation and regional planning and partnership with the uh, state level and the local level in that way. Peter, what else would you like to talk well, about here? we got a couple minutes. You know, I do think, uh, Commissioner, you're quite right about uh, Tyler and I, in our experience in uh, funding shoreline restoration projects and raising taxes around Florida and North Carolina over the years, having a third-party arbiter makes a lot of sense because in when it is the city council members or a county commissioner or the land commissioner uh, in the hearing setting, what it becomes is a lobbying exercise. People know that you're the decision maker. They quit thinking about the problem. They quit trying to think what's the best solution. They quit thinking how to work together. They just want to know, are you going to vote for me or not? And that's not the conversation to have. It is the one you're trying to set up, which is these local communities have to grapple with the conditions they have and the limited funding and how does this all put together and what are our priorities. So I think... Uh, that is a great implementation approach, and I, I think it's going to work. Uh, yeah, the, the, the situation of rent-seeking is one we want to uh, avoid here in Austin. But I would also say that we're also working on hot tax because you had mentioned keeping revenues in coastal communities. Yeah. One way in which revenues are raised is through a hotel occupancy tax. And right. um, most of that, if not all, uh, I think it's now um, over two-thirds of all ho hotel occupancy tax that's raised in coastal communities comes here to Austin. Right. And then it gets repatriated in general revenue. We have a proposal on the table to keep uh, two-thirds in coastal communities. Uh, we first uh, had a bill uh, filed um, by a coastal legislator. This session, it's filed by Jeannie Morrison, who's from Victoria, Texas, close to the coast. Uh, we think that it's actually making some progress in the House. Uh, hopefully we can get that uh, going on the Senate. Again, this is a chance after Harvey where people are, there, there's a reset. There's a paradigm shift for highland communities, people even in, in West Texas um, and other parts of our, of our state that are taking a totally different look at how we can protect the coast. So that, that's another one of our legislative items we're working on. Real quick, I wanted to, I couldn't help but ask you about the expansion of energy exporting on the Texas coast. We are now a net exporting nation. The land office, of course, directly involved in oil and gas development in this great state. Uh, a huge project in uh, 
the Port of Corpus Christi. How does the land office look at this expansion of LNG exports, oil and gas? I mean, this is tremendous for the economy of the state, but a big job, another big job for the land office. Well, it, it, it's a we are a beneficiary in the sense that we do maintain 13 million acres of oil and gas minerals, which generate billions of dollars for public education. So this is definitely beneficial toward the portfolio that we can find new international markets to export to. Having said that, there is an environmental challenge, and it's a challenge that we've seen for as long as I've been here. One of my first calls was from constituents close to Corpus Christi in um, in um, in, an, in a retirement community where they saw demurrage traffic with barge traffic literally going on state lands, um, not necessarily polluting, but on an unauthorized basis docking right. there as they waited mm-hmm. a week, sometimes two weeks, to unload their, their cargo. This is before the export ban was lifted. We're seeing more of that up and down the coast, including in the Sabine Pass. So I've been working with Representative Phelan, who represents um, Orange County, uh, roughly, to work on uh, a triaging process by which we can have recourse. Because right now, there isn't an entity, whether it's TCQ, Coast Guard, myself, or a general land office, to interdict mm-hmm. uh, whether you have an agency that's polluting or on an authorized uh, basis parking on state land. So we're working on le- a staging area, if you will, yeah. so mm-hmm. that if you are not, uh, if you can't be offshore and more, that you can more perhaps uh, onshore, but you'd be protected, and we'd have a boom process since we have an oil spill response team to, yeah. to, to have a process set up. Well, Commissioner, we know you have to go. Your staff is giving us the evil eye because you're a very busy man, and uh, so we. Uh, well, I got to go lobby in the Capitol. <laughs> no, no, no. You got you got, the, uh, you got work to do. Big business at the Capitol, at Texas General Land Office, Land Commissioner George P. Bush. Thank you so much for being on the American Shoreline Podcast. Appreciate it, guys. Thank you. Thank you.